Our God, we thank you so much for you. We thank you for who you are and what you do and what you've done. We thank you for the truth of the message based on what Jesus has done for us. And I pray that this morning, in each heart that is here and listening today, that you would lift up Jesus Christ. Lord, whether we're a believer or have never heard the gospel before, just lift up Jesus Christ in our hearts. And would we just be in awe and full of gratitude to him for who he is and what he's done for us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Who is the goat? Who is the goat? Now, some of you are sitting here saying, that is the weirdest opening to a sermon I've ever heard in my life. What in the world are you talking about? Some of you know that term and you're saying, follow-up question, in what realm? Who is the goat? Whether you like it or not, let me, let me educate you on some internet slang this morning, today or today. The term goat, if you've never heard this before, is an acrostic for, and if you are younger than me and, and beyond, you probably know, greatest of all time. Who is the goat? Who is the greatest of all time? For example, who is the goat in classical music composing? Barbara Walston has thoughts. I asked her this week on this one, and she had a hard time getting one composer. She used names like Mozart, Bach, and Beethoven. Just kidding. I know how to pronounce Beethoven. He's pretty good, all right? Just kidding. But uh, she had a hard time getting one. U.S. presidents, who is the GOAT? Likely you think of faces on Mount Rushmore and monuments in Washington, D.C., right? Men like Washington, Lincoln, Roosevelt, and others you might think is the greatest of all time when it comes to U.S. presidents. If you follow the world of athletics at all, you know the debate that is ongoing even right now between two NBA basketball players. LeBron, King James of the Cavaliers, Heat, Cavaliers, and Lakers right now, and Wilmington native, North Carolina Tar Heel, Michael Jeffrey Jordan. Now, if you weren't alive when Jordan played, you might be tempted to think LeBron is the GOAT. If you saw Jordan play live, then we know better, right? Chicago Bulls, which I grew up in Chicago. I have have an affinity to the Bulls uh, back then. Air Jordan, we all agree, if we saw him play, was the GOAT, the greatest of all time. The Bible you brought to church today, if you brought your your Bible or on your device, has exactly, according to the internet at least, exactly 31,102 verses in it. 31,102 verses. I want to ask a question this morning. Is there a verse in the Bible that we might say is the goat verse of Scripture? Now, I know some of you are saying, brother, theologically, I I get it, okay? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's all profitable. You can't say one is better. I I understand that. But is there a verse that sticks out among the others? Our text this morning was was commented up by William Barclay. He said, all great men and women have had their favorite texts, but this has been called everybody's text. John MacArthur, regarding our text this morning, says that this verse is undoubtedly the most familiar and beloved verse in all of Scripture. Turn in your Bibles, please, if you would, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. 
I would like to look today closely at and rejoice in the incredible truth of John chapter 3, especially, and you all know what's coming, right? Or at least most of you do at least, I should say everyone, especially John 3.16. John 3.16. John 3.16 is the most well-known verse in all the Bible. It is a beautiful summary of the whole Bible, succinctly stating the message of the Bible starting in Genesis and all the way to Revelation. John 3.16 is in the Gospel of John, the book of John, written by the Apostle John. And if you know your Bible, you know that there are four Gospels in the New Testament, each of them a different perspective, a different slice perspective on the life of Jesus of Nazareth. If I were to theme John's Gospel in one phrase, it would be Jesus, Son of God. Every verse, every sentence, every word in John's gospel was written with a specific persuasive purpose. He says it in the end of the book, John 20, 31, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life through his name. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You would believe that and that believing you might have life Packed word, life through his name. John 3, verse 16, says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We had a couple of guys here recently, one of them is here today, uh, Essa and Jeremiah Preach, in the Fine Arts event in North Carolina uh, a week and a half ago or so, and something with a competition like that for young preachers, they encouraged them to have what is called a proposition statement. In other words, you should be able to, to summarize your whole message in one succinct statement. I have one for you today. It's, I've worked hard on it. I wrestled with it, got the wording just right. My message in one sentence is this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You can't improve on Jesus, can you? This morning I'd like to look at at two points regarding John 3.16. First, the setting surrounding John 3.16 and then the incredible truth of John 3.16. Number one, one of two, the setting of John 3.16. And I'll say this, John 3.16 was stated by Jesus to a person in a specific situation. Stated by Jesus to a person in a specific situation, okay? Before embarking on this journey together, let me just address one thing here, all right? Most of you with with your Bible this morning, you look at John 3.16, it's in red letters, Probably some of you here look at your Bibles, and John 3.16 is not in red. It's in black. The red ends at verse 15. Now, in a sense, it doesn't really matter. God wrote this. He inspired and breathed it out. But there is some discussion about whether or not Jesus said these words or whether the Apostle John began with commentary starting at verse 16. Just to be clear, I believe that verses 10 to 21 are indeed the words of Jesus, and I'll approach the passage in that way. The first word in John 3.16 is the word 
4. Four points back to the buildup toward this monumental statement of Jesus Christ. Look at John chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll go through the story here leading up to uh, the, the famous statement. John 3, verse 1 says this. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. We have in this story two main characters. Jesus, the Son of God, and Nicodemus. Who was Nicodemus? Now, first of all, studying other parts of the book of John, we know that he was wealthy. He had a lot of money. He was rich. Second, verse 1 calls him a man of the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus' entire life mission was centered on obedience to and the keeping of the Old Testament law. He was a Pharisee. Third, verse 1 calls him a ruler of the Jews. He was a member of the Jewish, what was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of Jewish society. It had 70 men, no less, no more. He was one of 70 men responsible for the moral and spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel in the first century. And fourth, jumping ahead a little bit, verse 10, in verse 10, Jesus calls Nicodemus a master or a teacher in Israel. I'll notate this. Other translations don't call Nicodemus a teacher, but rather, if you see it there, the definite article, the teacher in Israel. This man, Nicodemus, may very well have been viewed by his countrymen as the preeminent scholar of the scriptures, the authority when it came to interpreting and teaching the Old Testament law. You get the picture of who this man was? He was respected, accomplished, and highly decorated as a spiritual leader in the nation of Israel. One writer said this about Nicodemus. If, if first century Israel had a pope, Nicodemus would have certainly been a top candidate. And this man, Nicodemus, it says, comes to Jesus. And by the way, in many ways, it is stunning that Nicodemus came to Jesus Christ at all. Verse 2, the same came to Jesus by night. Why he come at night? A couple of reasons. We don't know for sure, but possibly a bit of fear. He may have been concerned that it would have looked bad for him as a highly respected leader to associate with an upstart peasant, if you will, named Christ of Nazareth. Or maybe he wanted to just have some uninterrupted interaction with Jesus. We don't know for sure, but... Those are some possibilities that are there. We have two men meeting up in the evening. I'm going to put some chairs out here. I don't know if it was in his house indoors, Nicodemus. It may have been on his roof. I don't know why I think this, but for some reason I believe that, or I I, I picture this taking place on Nicodemus' nice house on his roof, open roof in the evening. Don't know for sure. Were they standing? Were they sitting Nicodemus was older. I'm guessing they were sitting. I don't know if they were on chairs or a stool or on the floor. We don't know for sure, right? But we have these two men at night in a private conversation in or on top of Nicodemus' beautiful home having this discussion. Verse 2. And said unto him, Rabbi, this is Nicodemus speaking, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And so Nicodemus addresses Jesus 
And he says, yeah, they may have had small talk first. We don't know for sure, but I'm sure a rehearsed kind of lead-in comment. Nicodemus says, hey, Jesus, um, listen, good to talk to you. We know, based on your miracles, you must be from God. This was meant to be, I believe, a compliment. There's an assumption here of Nicodemus. He is assuming that essentially Nicodemus, as a respected scholar leader, is here. And Jesus, who he's addressing, is here. And he is sort of saying, Jesus, hey, you're from God, obviously. Come on this direction. Welcome to the club. He's bringing Jesus up. It's a compliment, is the idea that he meant here. Okay? What Jesus says next is quite direct. And considering the stature of Nicodemus is unbelievably shocking. Verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus hears this comment. He may have paused. I, I would kind of imagine that, weighing his words that he was going to say to this man that was reaching out in kindness in his own heart, he thought, and he says to him, Nicodemus, truly I say to you, except a human being, a man, woman, is born again, they won't even see the kingdom of God. Here's what he says here. Nicodemus' assumption, Nicodemus here, Jesus here, being pulled up, and Jesus says this, no, Nicodemus, how high can I get here? Careful, okay? I am here, and you and the rest of Israel and the world are all here. Whew. Stunning statement. And he says, Nicodemus, essentially, if you, with all your decor, want to be a part of God's kingdom, you must be born again. Wow. Hard to say he had guts. This is Jesus, the Son of God, but that took some guts. Verse 4, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? I wonder the look on his face as he heard this statement and realized what he was inferring, Jesus was inferring. He says, what? (laughs) And he gives this kind of ridiculous question that makes no sense. But I wonder if he had an idea of what Jesus was getting at and suspected what he was was saying there in verse 4 as he replies. Verse 5, Christ replies again. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, just stop for a second here on this this verse. I I read probably seven to nine commentaries on John 3, verse 5. And good conservative scholars have differences here. I'm not positive, just being honest with you. I came to this with one view. I, I, I thought coming in that he was referring with water and the spirit, the two births, water being physical, spirit being spiritual, the second birth. Verse 6 seemed to confirm that. What is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. After marinating my mind a little bit, I'm leaning a different direction on this one, to be honest. Later in the conversation, Jesus comes back after Nicodemus heavily, saying that he, as a teacher of the law, the Old Testament, Nicodemus should know the law and these truths. And I think the reference Jesus was, was referring to that Nicodemus should have known is Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27. Listen to it here. This is Ezekiel, the law. 
For I will take you among the heathen and gather you out of all the countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and all your idols with that water, he infers, will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give to you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you an heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments. Nicodemus knew the Old Testament. He knew references like this one regarding water and spirit. So my view, if you disagree, no problem, we're good. My view is that this is pregnant with Old Testament meaning, being born of water and the Spirit. Both terms are squarely connected to the second birth, being born again. Water and the Spirit. He continues in verse 7. Marvel not that I said unto you, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. He says this, Nicodemus, you should not be shocked that I am telling you you must be born again. The Old Testament that you're a teacher of spells this out clearly, and frankly, Nicodemus, you should know this. Shouldn't be surprised. Gives an illustration here, the wind. Maybe it was a a, a nice night, they're sitting here talking, maybe they felt a breeze come across the roof and so forth, and Jesus says that, The spirit is like the wind. It's not visible. You can't see it, but it is real. And you sure can see the effects of it. Spiritual life is not necessarily visible. It's not a kingdom like you're looking at in Israel of laws and obedience and symbols and that. It is not outward. It's not fleshly, but it is very real. And you can see the effects of it clearly. At this point, I think Nicodemus is just about speechless. (laughs) He's saying, what on earth have I gotten myself into? What is this? What is he talking about? Or maybe even worse, he knew. (laughs) He knew what he was talking about. It has not gone like he expected in any way. The comments of Nicodemus get shorter and shorter, don't they? You see that? Verse 9, he simply answers and says to him, how can these things be? How? Verses 10 to 12, I'll, I'll briefly reference these. Jesus to Nicodemus, assesses Nicodemus. He says three things about him. First of all, he says, Nicodemus, you are ignorant of the most important spiritual truth. Verse 10, he says, he answered and said unto him, are you, aren't you a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Are you the teacher in Israel and don't know this basic important truth? Number two, you don't accept it. In a sense, you have rejected our witness. Verse 11, verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and ye receive not our witness. And the big blow is in verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you heavenly things? You're ignorant, you've rejected, and most of all, you do not believe. And that is what is most needed. In fact, that is the only thing that is needed. We'll get to this in a second here. Our beloved pastor at times will stop in messages and he'll say something like this, right? 
it's getting real quiet. I'm guessing in this conversation, this point, got really quiet. Nicodemus is stunned. He's one of the most respected men in Israel. He initiated the conversation, the meeting in the first place. And he'd been put in his place by a poor, positionless peasant from Galilee. I think he's starting to wonder if this poor peasant from Galilee may be hitting the nail directly on the head. I'll give you an illustration here. If you're a Star Wars fan, we have a few and some that despise Star Wars. Forgive me if you don't like Star Wars. But in the first movie, The Phantom Menace, we have a, a, a main character named Qui-Gon Jinn. He is stranded on a desert planet called Tatooine. Some of you are saying, what are you talking about? Just stay with me here, okay? Qui-Gon Jinn is in an intergalactic journey across the galaxy, and he is stuck because one of the parts on his ship is broken. It's worthless. It needs replacing. Qui-Gon Jinn meets a blue creature, not sure what he is, named Watto or Watu, who has the part that Jinn needs, and he's selling it. Watto asks Qui-Gon Jinn, how do you plan to pay for all this? Qui-Gon replies, like this, by the way, you Star Wars fans, I have 20,000 Republic credits, just like that. I don't know what what good that is, but apparently it's supposed to do something good. 20,000 Republic credits. Watto replies, Republic credits? Republic credits are no good out here on Tatooine. In a sense, Watto says you could have 10 trillion Republic credits and it would make no difference. In this realm, every single Republic credit, no matter how many you have, is worthless. And if all you have is credits, then, sir, you have nothing. That is what Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus. I see what you have. You're a keeper of the law as a Pharisee selected by your own people as a leader with authority in the Sanhedrin and considered the teacher in Israel. But Nicodemus, in the realm of gaining God's favor, all of those things are worthless. Worthless. And although you have all these things, when it comes to God's kingdom, Nicodemus, you have nothing. Nothing. Jesus says, initially, you must be born again. In spite of all, you, all you've accumulated, Nicodemus, you're starting over. You are starting over. All that you've, you've put together is worthless, and you are level with the tax collectors, prostitutes, sick, maimed, and such like. The same level, needing one thing, and that is to be born again. I'll stop for a second here that, and say this. The message tonight, this morning, excuse me, is for all of us. For all of us. Whether you were saved 100 years ago or this is brand new to you, there is truth here for you to take in. Listen, friend, nothing that any of us have done has any value in the kingdom of God and our standing with God. Nothing. Not our good deeds, not the fact that we're a nice guy or lady or a good, well behaved kid, not the fact that our dad is a pastor or our grandparents started a church not growing up in church, not in the fact of anything about us or anything that we may have accomplished or done or planned to do. And folks, frankly, that is great news. It's not about us here. 
Nicodemus wasn't about his accomplishments or who he was. This was all about Jesus. All about Jesus. In verses 13 and 14, Christ gives a passive, sort of passive-aggressive indication of who he really is. Verse 13, And no man had ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even, the phrase, the Son of Man, which is in heaven. That is a clear reference to Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days, the one coming in the clouds, one like the Son of Man. That's Jesus. And he says, no one's come down from heaven and bridged this gap except for the Son of Man, and that's me. In verse 14, he gives a reference, a picture from the Old Testament, from Numbers 21. It says in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The picture is this, the Son of Man, Jesus, would one day be lifted up in two ways, really. Number one, on a cross, like the bronze serpent in Numbers 21, right? Lifted up that way, he would die on that cross, eventually rise again the third day, and then be lifted up again as his Father glorifies Jesus Christ. And so he says here, like in Numbers 21, when the Jews were being bitten by poisonous serpents, if they would look to the bronze serpent lifted up, They'd be healed in the same way if Nicodemus and if anyone in any year, including right now, will believe on the lifted up Son of God, they'll be healed from their sin. Which brings us to John 3.16. We've seen the setting, the buildup, and now we look at the truth of John 3.16. John 3.16 summarizes the truth of the entire Bible and is one of the greatest statements of truth and hope ever uttered. Jesus has smashed Nicodemus' hope. He has obliterated it. He has rendered it as worthless entirely. But I think here he now gives the good news, the hope. And he says this, Nicodemus, your accomplishments are worthless. That's the bad news. Don't cling to them. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that's anybody, that's you, that's people today, believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let me give you briefly three truths from John 3, 16. Three simple ones. Many of you know them, all right? Here's the first one. Number one, God loved. God loved. He says, for God, who is God? God is the majestic, sovereign, powerful creator. He is holy. He is perfect. He is of purer eyes than to behold evil. God hates proud looks, lying tongues, and all other expressions of sin. So we have God on the, on the one hand here. On the other, other end of the statement, we have the world. God and the world. Later, John would write in his epistle, 1 John, he would say that the whole world lies in wickedness. So we have two different parties here. If you're younger, you may know this, but there are, there are, there are apps out there. They're called compatibility apps. They're dumb, I think, by the way, just being honest. I'm going to sound like a 49-year-old, I guess, or 48 still, okay? But compatibility apps, you go on this app, I guess, and plug in two different names or parties or whatever, and it'll tell you apparently just how compatible 
you are, whether you should get together or you shouldn't, or you should run away or get married or whatever it is. If you were to plug in the two parties and names, God and the world, to a compatibility app, you would not find two parties that are more polar opposite. God and the world have nothing in common. They are utterly, completely incompatible. What word could possibly link these two polar opposites? God and the world. Well, maybe God hated the world. That makes sense. As good as God is and as bad as the world is, God hated the world. Or maybe God was disgusted by the world. Ugh. He despised the world. He was angry with the world. He judged the world. That makes sense. He condemned the world. Or maybe God just flat out forgot the world, moving on, pretending it didn't even exist. It would all make sense. But what does the verse say? For God so loved the world. God so loved the world. To Nicodemus, even this was a revolutionary thought. If Jesus had said God loved the nation of Israel, he might have said, some of us, <laughs> the good ones that obey him actually, that's not what he said. He said, Nicodemus, God so loved the world. And he so loved the world. I love pizza so much. I want a new car, that one, so badly. I so badly want to get married or travel to Australia. Jesus says that God so loved the world. He looks at the world and has compassion on the people of the world. The world's the people. He has affection for the people of the world. He ties himself emotionally, in a sense, to the well-being of the people of the world. He cares for the people of the world. So what does this mean to us today? Does God love people in New Zealand or Cambodia? Sure he does, even today, right? Does God love people in South Africa, the Congo, and Libya? Well, yeah, he sure does. We have missionaries going to some of these places, right? What about North America, the U.S. of A? Does God love those folks? He sure does. He loves those people. Does God love people in the city of Raleigh? Yeah, even today. What about people who sit right now in the pews at Friendship Baptist Church? Yes, God loves all those people. He loves the world, and God loves you. God loves you. Message from God for you from the word of God today. God loves you. Augustine said this, God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. God loves you and looks at you as if you were the only one and loves you with all that depth and strength and mercy. Friends, God loves you. And I'll say this to you. This is a crazy thought. God cannot ever love you more than he loves you right now at this moment. You know that? He loves you so much right now. He could never love you more than he loves you right at this moment. God so loved the world. And friend, that includes you and me. Number two, truth, God gave. God so loved the world that. The word that means he did something about it. He didn't just sit in heaven and say, those folks are a mess. I wish somebody would do something to help those people out a little bit. No, God so loved the world that he gave. Melanie's not here today, but one of my pastors in Kansas City, her, her grandfather, 
would always say when I was in seminary, he would say this statement. You can love without giving, but you cannot love without, I'm sorry, you can love, you can give without loving, excuse me. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. God loved and then God gave. He gave his, something that belonged to him. It was his own. He, lo- he gave his only begotten. Now, this word has been misunderstood by some false teachers, right? It does not mean he was created at some point in the past. That's not what it means. Okay? He has always been. John details that. Others detail that. The Greek compound word means unique or one and only. God gave his only begotten what? Son. Let that thing sink in for a second. Because God loved you, God gave his only unique son. Let me ask you a question to think about for a second. Could God have demonstrated his love for you in any greater way than to give his son the most incredibly valuable thing that belonged to him? Could he have loved you any more than that? And he gave his son. Who is God's son? His name is Jesus. Came to this earth and lived around 2,000 years ago. His footprints, in a sense, are still found in Israel today. He lived for 33 years. He demonstrated God's power with miracles and proclaimed God's message to everyone. And it was in God's perfect plan for Jesus, God's son, to be rejected, targeted, arrested, tortured, humiliated, and then murdered by being crucified on a Roman cross. Before he died, he proclaimed, it is finished. It is finished to tell us die. He had accomplished what he had come to do, to die to pay for my sins and for your sins as our substitute. And then on Sunday, being crucified on Friday, Jesus, being dead for days, rose again from the dead in an unmatched display of power, proving that he was who he said he was, and that he had truly accomplished salvation for you and for me. God loved, God gave, and then thirdly, God saves as we believe on Jesus. He says this, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever, friend, anyone, anyone, whether you're morally accomplished like Nicodemus or not, makes no difference. Jesus says, whosoever believeth in him, faith alone, with Jesus as the object of our trust and faith, should not perish. If Christ doesn't come back in the rapture soon, we, we, we may physically die, but we will never face the judgment of our sins. Christ already did that. And then he says, but have everlasting life. Living in a, a relationship with God is the best, most abundant way to live, and that abundant life will last forever as we live in the most incredible place God could put together for those whom he loves it's called heaven. John three sixteen. What happened to Nicodemus? How did it turn out for him? Now, just briefly here, I don't believe that he was born again in John 3. I don't think he was. But I do believe that at one point he was born again, and we'll see him in heaven. In John 7, he is seen defending Jesus to, to his fellow Jewish leaders. In John 20, two men... Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus oversee the pulling down of Christ's body off the cross after he's dead. Nicodemus gave a great mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Again, he was wealthy. 
and they oversaw the burial of Jesus. And I believe that at some point, Nicodemus rejected his religious pedigree, acknowledged it for what it was, worthless, not worthy of his trust, and Nicodemus, placing his faith in Jesus, the Son of God, was born again. And friend, you know what? So can you. So can you. If you will put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he did for you, you also will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's wrap things up this morning. What are our takeaways? Let me give you two takeaways. Okay? Here's the first one. Uh, many of you know our friends, the Costanzas. Tim and Jen, they have three adorable kids, boys. One time I said that, by the way, they wouldn't like being called adorable, probably the boys wouldn't, but they're cute. Okay? They also have an adorable, roughly eight-pound white little dog. His name is Oliver. Uh, Oliver's watching right now, I believe, on, on live stream. Oliver, good dog. See you, buddy. See you soon. Oliver stays at our house sometimes, and, and recently he stayed with us, and uh, he slept in our bed with us, Kelly, in, in, in our, our bed. Kelly got up from the bed. He was at the foot of the bed there and uh, came back, and, and lo and behold, Oliver has now moved to the, the head of the bed. I'm going to give you a visual here, okay? All right? And he's doing this. He's on, on his back, mouth open, right, tongue out, and he's just thrashing back and forth, you know, back and forth, Oliver, just thrashing. Like there's some sort of joy that he's finding in the, the, the head of our bed. He's frolicking, thrashing, wallowing in some sort of joy, okay? Now listen, if you know Christ, if your sins are forgiven, if you belong to Jesus today, I want you to go away today wallowing in a bed that is the truth of John 3, 16. Go right ahead. What a blessing. Oh, God loves me so much. Oh, glory. He loves me that he gave his son, his only son, for me. And wow, pinching myself here, he accomplished my salvation and has promised me eternal life and abundant life in heaven forever. Wow. And just lay on your back and just go, ah, life is so good. Right? Just celebrate it. Just celebrate it. The truth of John 3, 16. Listen, you believe at some point, right? If you're a believer today, you don't stop believing. The belief grows. I'll give you this picture here. My birthday is today, big 3-0. I know it's hard to believe. I heard that. We'll talk later, right? Okay. Am I going to celebrate today? Well, no. I mean, we, I was born a long, long time ago, right? Some of you would say, you know, we're not going to celebrate again, are we? Yes, we are. We're going to celebrate every year and beyond that. Here's my encouragement to you. Every day, including today, have a birthday party about your salvation and spiritual birth. Every day. Friend, can I tell you this? This is a a, a quick loaded thought. Every bit of power and motivation that you need for the Christian life is right there. That's it. The more you wallow and glory and joy in that, the more everything else becomes smaller and cheap and temporal. And why go for that? I am a child of God, beloved by God, so much he gave his own son for me. Go ahead and celebrate in that way. Wallow and, and frolic in the truth of John 3.16. First, first takeaway. Number two is this. You say, I'm not sure that's me. 
I'm not sure that I, I, I've been saved. This is new to me, maybe. Or maybe I've never appropriated for my own self the gospel, the truth of John 3.16. I have some great news for you. This book, that verse, was written for you. That you, he says it, might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life through his name. John wrote this gospel, people of all time, to convince them to believe on Jesus and have life through his name. And friend, listen, you can believe today. There's no build up here. It is simply saying no to your sin, saying yes to Jesus in faith, and receiving the free gift, Ephesians says, of eternal life. Whoever believes on him won't perish, but have everlasting life. Last story will be done. It was June 15th, 1968. The king, Elvis Presley's career, has reached its peak and now is dramatically cooled off. A producer in Hollywood named Steve Binder is determined to provide Elvis, the king, with a reality check. His quote, your career, Elvis, is in the toilet. And so he invites Elvis Presley, the once world-famous musician, to come downstairs during rush hour of Hollywood, California's Sunset Boulevard. They go downstairs to the sidewalk during rush hour. There are cars everywhere, people walking everywhere. And we have one of the, at one time, one of the most famous celebrities on earth. But things are different. His fame, Elvis's fame has faded. And as the story is told, at this point, 1968, June 15th, not one person, not one driver, one pedestrian, pays any attention to Elvis Presley. He's embarrassed by this. He's shocked by this. He starts to wave at people, trying to get somebody's attention, and still, nobody pays attention. A couple of kids, the story is told, actually bump into him while walking and don't even bother to lift their heads. Elvis, once adored and even worshipped, today, no one even notices him during rush hour in Hollywood on Sunset Boulevard. They head back upstairs, and this is devastating to Elvis, of course, and people used to clamor for a look, for a piece of clothing, and now no one, not even one person on their way past him is looking for him or notices him. But that wasn't totally true. In fact, there was someone looking for Elvis Presley. That someone had a love for Elvis, not because of his fame or musical talent. He was invisible, but make no mistake, he was looking for Elvis. His name, Jesus Christ. As no one paid attention, Jesus saw Elvis. I don't know his condition. I don't, I don't, I've heard different things about how he ended his life and so forth, and if there was some sense of faith, I don't know the answer to that. But I do know this. As Elvis yearned for someone to pay attention to him, Jesus looked from heaven and said, I love you, Elvis. I care for you. I don't know how, how loved you feel today. You may say, I feel very unloved by people around me. Can I tell you something? And it's true as much as can be. It's true. It's, 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 it's totally true. Someone is looking for you today. That someone is Jesus. And today, because of his love, he is looking for you. And friend, he loves you more than you could possibly ever imagine. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, 
but have everlasting life. If you have not believed on Jesus today, believe on him right now or at home tonight. Believe on Jesus today. Go ahead. And if you have believed on Jesus, let that belief and faith continue to grow. And today and every day, enjoy and celebrate and wallow in the truth of John 3.16. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, his person, his work, the unspeakable gift that he is to each one of us, offered to us. Thank you that many have received his gift, not because of their own pedigree or background or niceness or talent or accomplishments, but because of your love. Lord, if anybody here has never received that gift, would they do so today or very soon? And Lord, for those that have received Christ, whether it was a year ago or months ago or many years ago, God, help each one of us to truly rejoice in, connect to, and wallow and celebrate the news of John 3.16. I pray in Jesus' name.